Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Today's guest is Brandon Quitten. If you've not heard of Brandon, go find him on Twitter. He has written some amazing articles about Bitcoin, most notably his Mycelium series, uh, a four-part series, um, like comparing the Bitcoin network to a network of Mycelium, which is truly, completely, utterly amazing. I think it's going to blow you away if you've not read it or listened to it because, you know, I outsource my reading. I don't find the time of the day to, to read that many articles. So I rely on Guy Swan over at uh, Bitcoin Audible to do my reading for me. And uh, I really appreciate that guy. You've put it together an amazing show. And he, um, he really helps me keep on top of all the content that is coming out. Now, I listened to Brandon as well on um, a few recent shows with, uh, with uh, Kika. Uncle Marty Bent, he was on Tales from the Crypt, and a great show as well with um, John Vallis and uh, Brady from Citizen Bitcoin, where, um, man, they got deep. That was just, like, awesome stuff. Um, and they split that between two shows. So, like, part one, I believe, is on Brady's show, and part two is on John's. And um, <laughs> just... Listening to these guys riff were, was awesome. And, um, you know, I reached out to Brandon and uh, he, he graciously accepted to, to come on the show and, and discuss um, some, some, of the, some more points around that. But, you know, other stuff that I was interested in that um, perhaps hadn't been covered in other podcasts. So I hope you enjoy this one. And um, as always, uh, thank you for listening. Before we jump on to it, quick shill, uh, coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten. Go start stacking some sats, daily, weekly, monthly buys, whatever it is. Let's just drip feed your stack. Let's just start the journey. Um, thank you, guys. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you enjoy this. It's really, really cool. I had a great time, and um, I'm sure you're going to love it. Thanks so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to today's show and joining me today is Brandon Quittam who has been writing some incredible pieces around uh, Bitcoin, lots and lots of articles. Uh, Brandon, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And the first question, I uh, I will just like slide into the background here, listeners, and let Lauren take over. Why do you write a lot about articles? Yeah, a lot of articles. Yeah, a lot of articles. About Bitcoin. About Bitcoin, yeah. Yeah, good question. And before I answer, I'm not going to lie, I was more intimidated by what your question was going to be than what your dad was going to ask for the remainder of the show. So just know you, you're an important part of the show, okay? How does that make you feel? I'm going to be famous very soon. <laughs> any, any day now. Um, I, t so I tell you what, when, 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 when Bitcoin conferences start up again, if if we can get to a Bitcoin conference somewhere, that do you know what a conference is? If I say that, no, no, okay, that's where a lot of people that want to go and learn okay. about Bitcoin yeah. and talk about Bitcoin, we can go and you can meet all these guys for real. How does that sound? I'm a very shy person, so I'm not that sure about 
that, but yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. Do you want to ask Brandon his uh, question again? Why do you write so many I, articles? Why do you write so many articles about Bitcoin? Something. Yeah, thanks for the question. So I write about Bitcoin because um, writing helps me clarify my thoughts. And so if we just think about an idea, that's we can only go so far in understanding something. But when I'm forced to write it down and share those ideas with other people, it makes me get really clear on what I'm trying to say, what I'm thinking. You know, otherwise I might just have a, a half good idea um, until I really refine it and have a little bit of pressure of sharing it with other people. Okay. That's a good question. That's a good answer. Yeah. Yeah. Should, I've got a question for Brandon. Okay, go. Okay. Brandon, do you think Lauren should do more writing about her thoughts each day and perhaps journal about her dreams and why are you escaping? <laughs> Come back. you got to listen to the answer. <laughs> Okay, so I, the answer is yes, but here's, here's why. So I grew up not wanting to write. I don't know if I had an early English teacher tell me you're not good at this or something like that, but I optimized for math and science in high school, and I was very good at those things. I started school to be an engineer, and I just threw everything away uh, that wasn't math and science, and I just do the bare minimum. And now as an adult, I'm learning how important writing really is. In fact, I even ran a, the school newspaper at my university, which is the largest school newspaper in the country. We had 200 employees, and I was in charge of the business side. Uh, I had nothing to do with the editorial side, and so and I came up through the, the sales org there. And so now as an adult, I'm, I'm spending way more time writing, and all the stuff I didn't pay attention to as a kid, I desperately wish I would have paid attention to back then. And so even if you're not sure about writing, I would say that someone your age, it's going to be a superpower when you get older because you can write one article that takes you two hours or 10 hours. You write it once and then for the rest of your life, those ideas are out there for other people to read. And you're going to meet a whole bunch of friends who read your ideas and say, wow, I agree. That's very interesting. And then they want to be your friend and then they send you information. And now you've got friends all over the world who connect with you because of your ideas. And so I think it's a superpower. If you're scared, just don't publish it in the beginning. Just write for your own personal benefit. I've already written four stories about a bunny, Daddy. What do you expect me to do? <laughs> Keep writing. Write a fifth story. They're great. I love reading them. Good old Poofy the Bunny. Yeah. Well, do you want to say um, good night, good yeah. afternoon? Wait, wait. Yeah. What time is it there? Ask Brandon. What time is it at your place? It's 11.30 in the morning. Okay, so have a great afternoon, right? That's right. Yep. Thank you Bye. so much. Bye-bye. What am I saying? Um, yeah, you too. <laughs> She's great. Thank you, man. Um, yeah, that's that's cool. That's interesting to hear about the, uh, the newspaper. Um, kind of... Yeah. Well, what was the what was the name of the newspaper and what was the name of the university? And I mean, so clearly that is a connection, right? Like um, working. I know you said you weren't on the editorial side, but there's something there. Yeah, I haven't quite figured out exactly what the connection is, but it's really, really ironic that I turned my back on all the things growing up that now I love and have provided fruit to me. Um, but the school is the University of Minnesota. It's the the big university in my state. And then the newspaper is the Minnesota Daily. And 
Yeah, it, it was massive. It's cut back a little bit now as print journalism is not quite as uh, robust of a business. Um, but at its time, we were delivering 20,000 papers a day. And it was the third biggest newspaper in our state. And yeah, we had 200 employees, uh, two to three million in revenue. And yeah, no it was way. a really cool experience. Uh, hard. Like I was taking full college course load and working um, at least 30 hours a week. And so my senior year was not as fun as my other years. Right. Do you still have any sway at the newspaper? Have you got any uh, any old network buddies there that are still there? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I met a lot of the professional media people in our city as a college student, which helped as I was networking, trying to find jobs. But now I go back and there's an alumni organization that has some sort of influence. I don't particularly have much, um, but I do go back and I help teach the sales reps there. And so they'll just say, hey, we're bringing in someone who used to be here and I'll just give a talk to the, the business side. And so, yeah, that feels good to give back. And it's a training ground, especially on the editorial side. Mm -hmm. And we've had some of the, the, the coolest college reporters go on and do pretty big stories um, afterwards. And so, yeah, it's, it's cool. I have a lot of pride for that organization. All right. Now, the Bitcoiners question of the day is, have they ever published any of your Bitcoin articles in the paper? Not that I know of. I actually haven't looked at the daily in a while. I should look that up. Oh, thank you. Lauren's bringing me a beer. Wow, that's fantastic. I need, I need yes. someone to do that for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, man, this is, well, this is an avenue. Like the, the, if, if you've, got, you've got all of this, this great knowledge, you've got all of these articles and you've got direct access to a huge circulating paper, we could be red pilling some some people in in your home state. You're absolutely right, and I'm embarrassed to think I never even thought of that. Man, well, this is what these conversations bring out, right? It's just lateral thinking, and um, get yourself right. a Bitcoin column. Um, you could become the most influential red pill <laughs> prescriber. <laughs> That's incredible, and, and you know what's the average age of the people that are reading this newspaper? Um. You know, I should know this, but it's been, I left school over a decade ago. I, I'm going to say 80% of them are college students who read the newspaper. And then the remaining 20% is just the community who sort of works in the university system, local businesses, or anyone who lives within a mile or two of the university probably cares. Right. You, yeah. I don't think they'll let me write though, because it is 100% <laughs> student run. There will be a Bitcoiner on campus. I hope they're listening right now. That okay. is going to reach out to you and say, can we take all of your content and can we use it and cut it up and edit it out how we need, how we think it will, um, you know, uh, kind of sit with, with our age group and, um, and just see what they can come up with. Um, so, yeah. I like that. Cool, man. What a weird rabbit hole to fall into, like, first, <laughs> like, first two seconds. That's Warren's fault. <laughs> Absolutely. This is this is what I love about you know these uh, multi generational kind of conversations, which generally just don't happen that much, right? Like um, there, there's there's too much generational war to be like um, worried about or memeing about, um, rather than just sitting down, sitting down and, and, and talking with each other and trying to figure this shit out. I completely agree. It feels like we're at the end of a cycle of um, single generation homes. 
And that really only started after World War II, where we come back a humming economy and we just invent suburbs. And that's when it, we broke away from multi-generational. And it was okay in the beginning, but I think it's caused a lot of issues, or maybe it's just a symptom of these issues. But I think we're going to come to the end of that. The, the young people can't afford homes. Um, the old people are going to need care from the young people. And that might be the catalyst that causes the wealth transfer from the older generations to the younger generations. And it's desperately needed. And mm. so, yeah, I think, I think we might see a uh, millennials in the basement type situation turn into something a little bit more positive, where it's more like millennials control the home and the boomers have the basement apartment, which is a, an arrangement that I actually lived in for five to 10 years. Yeah, my, my parents took, my dad's parents lived with us for five to 10 years starting when I was like 15 years old or something like that. And a very, very good experience. And it's something I hope to do with my parents one day if, you know, if they're in a situation where it makes sense. This is funny because um, Raul Powell was on the show very early and he was talking about this exact thing. Um, and you're from the millennial generation, I'm guessing. Yeah, I'm an old millennial, a couple years away from the cutoff. So I, I kind of... I am a millennial, but I feel yeah. a little bit of kinship with Gen X as well. So you're 70-something, I'm guessing? or late No, no, no. Uh, I'm 88. No, no, excuse me. You're 88. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm So I'm um, 76. So, yeah, I'm on like the cusp of like, uh, you know, the yeah. millennial winter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and, and he was talking about like um, – you know, this generation, my generation, if you're like 10 years ahead of that, uh, you know, the thought of ever moving back in with your parents is just so far gone because you've been so independent for so long because you still had that opportunity to to get on the property ladder, air quotes, and, and, and build a half-decent career before, like, you know, what you guys started facing down as millennials and like, you know, for, for Gen Z, if that's what we call them these days, it's just like zero hope. Um, multi-generational families are coming back whether we like it or not it's just going to be tougher I think for the, the slightly older Gen Xers to to sit with that I don't think the Gen Xers are going to fall in line with that one um, the millennials are were over parented and we were taught to be teamwork oriented and you know statism is sort of in, in, in a part of that. And so I think the millennials will voluntarily do that. And I think the Gen Xers will probably abandon that idea. You guys are too independent. Yeah, and they might just have just about enough to, to keep the wolf from the door. If, if that's the right analogy to use. <laughs> um, but we're well, talking about this then. I've got a list of things that I wanted to talk about. Um, but fourth turning seems like a perfect segue into that. Definitely. And, a great book, which I read, I don't know, four or five years ago. I can't remember. Um, and again, same guy. I was talking to Raul Powell about it because I picked that book up after watching Real Vision and realizing that so many of the guys that were making like macro level investment decisions were all talking about the fourth turning. So I picked that book up. I got into it. I couldn't put it down. Um, and particularly like the last section of that, like the scripts, which um, we're supposed to follow uh, or which they like kind of lay out, you know, what is the boomer script? What is the 
X's script? What is a millennial script? What is the work you're doing right now around the fourth turning? Because we're turning, right? We're in full turn. Massively. Yeah, and for anyone who hasn't, who's not familiar with these ideas, the quick premise is that time, we, we want to think that time is linear. It's just this slow, steady progression. But really what we're finding if we look backwards in history is that time is cyclical. And so patterns repeat. And what, excuse me, specifically with the fourth turning, it's about demography. And so this is a very human thing. This is an emergent phenomenon that we observe, similar to a complex system in an economy. And there are four archetypes in these generations that just go in a circle and they continually repeat. And based on which archetype is at which age determines the mood and the tone and how the society will respond to what's going on. And so it doesn't matter what technology is present today. It matters who's at what age and how we respond to that technology. And based on the thesis in this book, we're sort of at the end of a 80 to 100 year cycle now. We're in the quote crisis period, which is when things are bad, but we're actually willing to do something about the change. And so now is the, you know, massive change time and, and soon it will be a spring, a uh, new beginning sometime in the next 10 years based on this thesis. And that's characterized by, okay, we're sick of fighting. We want to rebuild. This is teamwork. Um, the analog is post-World War II, where we rebuilt. We had strong pensions, strong labor unions. Um, all kinds of social services were built. And also we built all the bridges and roads and dams and infrastructure in America. And so um, there is something hopeful to look forward to, but I would say that the millennials are the quote hero generation. And it's sort of our coming of ages during that crisis. And that's when we rebuild. And it's also scary because during that period we're, we're asking for change and we're, do, we're desperate. And so there's a risk of leaning socialists. And that was very, very real in the fifties um, there was a whole bunch of people who wanted communism in the United States, and that movement was massive. And so I'm trying to caution my millennial brethren to say, okay, it's not that, right? We know there's a problem. Let's not misdiagnose it. Let's, um, yeah, let's just not go down that path. It's quite terrifying to me. And so that's how I see the framing here. And what I, what I think is interesting now is I read that book about, I don't know, two or three weeks ago, and I was going to write an article saying, what do I learn here? What's the future? How does Bitcoin fit in? Straightforward. And then I started thinking about it more. And now, now I see three, this is the first time I've talked about this, by the way, I see three independent uh, future states all mapped to right now being a crucial period. Let's just say the perfect storm. And the three things are the fourth turning, which says we're in crisis. We're at the end of a long-term credit cycle, a la Ray Dalio. So 50 to 80 year credit cycles, right at the end of that. Um, and we're also at the beginning of the information age, which, according to the sovereign individual, is roughly 500-year mega cycles. And so because we're at the end of that, um, that book predicts the rise of the sovereign individual, also predicts Bitcoin, predicts the iPhone, predicts all this other stuff. And so what I'm seeing is three different things all stacked together simultaneously saying now is a period of change. And so I, I have a feeling in five, 10 years from now, we're going to look back and see how and laugh at how obvious this was. And it doesn't really matter if it was a pandemic or murdering George Floyd or what the catalyst was. The, the system was ready to burn. Man, I completely agree. 
But you just said something that like just jumped at me straight away. Five hundred year mega cycle. Yes, that's where we I, are. You think like it, according right to now? the sovereign individual thesis? Yeah. <laughs> Have you read that book? Not yet, but I'm going to get deep into it. Yeah, so I think it's a fantastic compilation of ideas. And it was written in the late 90s, similar to the fourth turning, predicting a lot of stuff, scary predictions that are accurate. Um, however, the book's long and goes, meanders too long, repeats itself. So it's hard for me to wholeheartedly recommend the book, but the ideas are powerful. Um, and that's really about the logic of violence. That's kind of the main thesis, which essentially says, um, what are the conditions today based on the technology and society that determine um, how, how violence is used for the, for in society? And let me just give an example because that's not very clear. So we started out um, in a hunter-gatherer society. Uh, then we moved to a feudal society, an industrial society, and information age. So I'll, I'll describe in, uh, industrial age, which was characterized by who has the largest army. And that's a period of expansionism and whoever has the most ships or the most aircraft carriers now will expand and take power and resources. So it's just a magnitude game. Now, as we shift to the information age, the logic of violence shifts. Now, all of a sudden we have things like the internet, we have things like uh, cryptography, private messaging, Bitcoin as free money. And so that constellation of technologies is very defensive. And so now you could, we could theoretically fracture into smaller city-states, and those city-states could not easily be attacked because, you know, okay, you attack our city, you're not getting the money, Bitcoin's safe. We can have asymmetric defensive warfare like anti-aircraft, drones, et cetera. And so um, all of a sudden the violence, logic violence shifts, and now we don't need these mega-democracies, which were the, the logic of violence before. And so, yeah, that's kind of where I see that change. And these don't come across very often. Like what's after the information age? I have no idea. Um, yeah. Yeah, man. Like, does that blow your mind that like every 500 years, there's this cycle, there's this shift and we're here talking about it and somehow have noticed it. It does blow uh, my mind, <laughs> but I'm cautious. Like, right. I mean, yeah, we, we can't say for sure it's definite but i mean it's tangible I, I i feel it i think everyone feels it right now and i think that i'm cautious because every society thinks that we're on the precipice of something big and i don't know if that's just an innately human ego thing or what um, but when i see these secular trends very clearly laid out like the credit cycle that did that wasn't 30 years ago you know the demography situation that we're dealing with that wasn't 30 years ago um, the information age, we're about 6% into the 500-year cycle, assuming it's 500 years. And so you could say that the transition is a little slower than they might have predicted. But at the same time, in a 500-year cycle, you can't really – it's not like 501, the change occurs. And so I'm cautiously on board with this thesis, we'll say. Wow. Does it give you hope or does it – kind of which way which way do you see it like because there's a lot of there's a lot of dystopia around right you know and we're going to lose all of our civil liberties and there's going to be drones in the air we won't be able to leave our homes like exactly what's been going on right now with um confinement what's going on in your in your home state which we're going to get to um but with all of that 
with all of this dystopian kind of future and this Orwellian future that everybody keeps, um, you know, it's easy to talk about the negatives because, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. Where do you fall on? Which, which side of the coin are you on? Yeah, good question. It, it's hard because it's so complex. The information's going crazy right now. It's hard to understand what the narratives are and what's real. Um, but I would say five years ago, pre-Bitcoin, I would be very pessimistic about the future. I would say since discovering Bitcoin and related technologies and related communities, I feel tremendously more optimistic. But it's, it's yet to be played out. I, I see the millennials who want change, who are fighting for change. And I think that's a very good thing. But I also see millennials um, using the word comrade uh, unironically. And, you know, college campuses are very, very um, open to the ideas of socialism. And they need to pick up a history book. You know, we played that game. It doesn't work. And so I'm concerned about the narratives on the far left. But I think that there are technological breakthroughs like uh, cryptography, currency, private communications. I think those things are so robust that even if we have some chirpy socialist stuff, I just don't think that that will ever outcompete again. And so I'm hopeful that this transition now will lead to smaller localized government, which is, I think, the most important thing to come. Um, I think we're already seeing signs of it. Trump wants to bring back our aircraft carriers, be it manufactured locally. And I, I hope we see a secular period of isolationism for countries and not necessarily, um, not, not completely, not like lock the borders down, but more like the U.S. will trade with Mexico more and instead of China, you know, those type of changes. And I think that's really, really positive. Um, the, the trade we made with fiat banking, exporting labor, importing cheap goods, like that cycle, it had to end. And so I think we're coming to the end of that. It could take five years or 20 years. I have no idea. But that I think that will lead to positive changes. Um, but I'm split, man. I, I think I'm, I'm more concerned for the future because this crisis is going to lead to a lot of civil liberties being eroded. In Minneapolis, they're already... Um, all the people they're arresting, they're tracing who they know and why, which is not really something that they could have done six months ago legally. And so, yeah, the liberties are disappearing day to day. It's terrifying. So let's touch on what's going on. Like, um, you know, you're in the state of Minneapolis, right? This is down the road. This this is happening on your doorstep. And as a Bitcoiner and being right in the center of you know this uprising or i know what 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 do you call it what 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 do you label it um what is going on right now and and what are your thoughts yeah i I think there's a lot of things going on so if we just stack up the like where we are today there's been between 50 and 500 years of abuse towards african-americans in the country and other minorities and so that that just is a heavy burden and there's a lot of weight behind that combined with where we've been quarantined, many lower income people lost their jobs. The stock market continues to go up. People are scared. People are uncertain. And then we witness a public execution that is very clearly murder. And so you add all these things up and it's just a really easy thing to get behind in a time with uh, severe uncertainty. And so I think that it's, um, simultaneously, we need police reform, but it's also 
there's economic issues here. There's, there's everything's all bundled up and it was just waiting to go. Um, and yeah, I live in Minneapolis. I'm about two miles, two and a half miles away from where George Floyd was murdered. And the whole city is in, I've never seen Minneapolis like this. You know, the main streets near the area, everything's burned down and maybe a few local businesses survive. And so it's quite chaotic here. And it's really hard to differentiate between peaceful protesters who want change, which there are many, and the people who are um, maybe outside, but looking for chaos, looking to burn things. You know, people are finding um, makeshift bomb materials stashed all around the city and bricks and weapons. And very clearly, there's at least two different groups mixed in here. And so the narratives are getting all tangled. It's be highly politicized. I see no end in sight. Truly, um, I don't, honestly, I don't know what to make of it, but it's a long time coming and I, I do support um, extreme measures here. I don't support violence and I don't support looting for chaos sake, but I do side with the change that needs to occur and the communities who tried peaceful protesting obviously didn't work. And so I support escalation, um, even though it feels weird to say. You're safe where you are. Uh, how how close does it come to like your your neighborhood? Pretty isolated, or yeah, isolated from the the chaos. I'm about six blocks away from a police station, which hasn't been attacked, but it has like ten foot concrete walls and barbed wire. It looks like a it looks like a base you're supposed to take over in a video game, like. It looks insane. I went for a walk yesterday by a park in my house and I saw about a dozen military vehicles, Humvees and insane looking vehicles that I didn't even know our military had and all the National Guard folks. And they were all just outside playing horseshoes and they're very friendly. And so strangely, the National Guard seemed to treat people with respect and the, the police act like high school kids who got made fun of, who are not very intelligent and who found their way into the military and they've had, you know, 50 years of no oversight and no consequences for their actions. And you can just see how they, uh, their disposition towards the people, it's incredibly different. And yeah, it's all around, but I do feel safe. It doesn't mean I, I'm not um, taking my physical security uh, seriously and my wife's and it doesn't mean I'm not armed. It doesn't mean I haven't, I'm not vigilant. But luckily, our immediate location seems to be okay. Well, uh, long may it last. That's um, that's crazy. You know, as a as an outsider looking in, it's it, like the videos you see crop up, like the on um, on Twitter. You know, these and huh, this is a thing, right? People will tell you fake news, fake news, fake news. It's like that's some guy's iPhone or some girl's iPhone of twenty seconds of what is exactly happening at that point. Yes, I don't get the full context of what happened before and what happened after, but there's no editing. There's no doctoring. Like, you know, that's as close as I'm going to be able to, like, see the real truth of what's going on. And it is shocking. It is. It's really shocking. And, and there is a lot of disinformation and misinformation mixed in here. But even if we assume some percentage of the videos are fake or politicized on purpose, there's too many videos going on to ignore the reality here. 
And I also, people don't really care if it's real or fake. You know, we see the image and we're impacted by it as, as a species. Misinformation, disinformation works. And I think there's going to be a, uh, I don't think people are going to recover and gain trust back for the police because there is just so many incidents. Like we're in a situation where we're protesting police violence and the police cannot stop being violent during that protest. And yeah, I, I just think people are going to have a bad taste in their mouth for a long time. And I think the only way out is massive change. And I don't think it's just the police force. I think education needs to be flipped over. Healthcare needs to start over. Like, I think there's going to be huge systemic changes. And I don't think anyone even appreciates how early we are in this transition. Um, that's my belief. I think we're just getting warmed up, sadly. Yeah, no, I agree. And, um, you know, to bring this back to Bitcoin, because um, I'm sure the folks listening are going to be more <laughs> interested in like, uh, you know, how does this all tie in with, with your thesis of change? And, you know, it's very easy to go, oh, you know, Bitcoin fixes this. But, um, yeah, I mean, what, what are your thoughts about if we take one thing that's happening in the States right now, you know, the, the universal basic income? How does that, like you as a Bitcoiner, how does that make you feel that, you know, so many people are getting this essentially what they view as free money? Um, there's a there's a lot of danger attached to that for, for my mind. But I'd just like to ask you the question about... Um, what do you feel about this? Because obviously you had a, a presidential candidate that was pushing for this as well, um, that dropped out of the race. Can I get your thoughts on 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 UBI? Yeah, I, so I, I'm sympathetic to the idea from a framing of we're going to continue automating jobs and eventually there will be a line in the sand, which is, are you above the computer? As in, are you telling computers what to do or managing people? Or are you below the line, in which case computers are telling you what to do? which at a certain point, your economic output is not worth anything. And so as we progress, theoretically, uh, lower skilled wages will just not have a way to earn an income. And so if that occurs, um, how do we prevent social unrest if the bottom 20, 30, 40, 50% of people just genuinely can't contribute to an economy? Um, I think there's a real risk of that occurring. And if that does occur, we do have to figure out a way to make sure those people are getting basic needs. And is it ba universal basic income? Maybe. Um, right now, it feels more like desperation than any, any sort of um, strategic plan. And so how I see this next period is I think UBI is nearly inevitable. I think there's a very high chance that we go to that on a month-to-month -month basis, not just a temporary thing. And if we do that, um, I think it's just a ticking time bomb before we see hyperinflation. Um, it probably won't happen in a year, but I think that if we do that, we'll see massive consumer price index uh, type increases and Bitcoin will benefit tremendously in that environment. And at a certain point, the system will have to reset. We'll have to start over with the money, which most people alive today in America aren't familiar with, but most Argentinians, most people from Greece, most people from Cyprus, most people from Venezuela, uh, many other countries they're, they're, that are alive today have witnessed a currency reset. And so I think that it's going to happen. I hope Bitcoin is ready by the time it's needed. I don't think it's ready anywhere. I don't think it's anywhere near ready today. 
Um, but I think it could siphon away store value during this period. And hopefully in a decade, Bitcoin is ready and that hopefully it's not needed until then. Yeah. Do you think, do you think we need universal Bitcoin income? I don't think that would work. I don't think any government would give away sats like that. Um, <laughs> UBI only works because it's taxing um, through inflation, right? It's free money and yep. devalues everyone. But I think a universal basic income with Bitcoin would be, um, I think it's the other way around. I think it'll be, a, hopefully, people are taking that UBI and stacking some sats with it. And I mean, subjectively, I know people who have gotten the stimulus checks and just bought Bitcoin. And the timing was quite ironic looking at the price. And so, you know, without any science applied, I think that universal basic income is very good for Bitcoin. Yeah. And um, for the listeners wondering when we're recording this, this is 2nd of June and uh, the price of Bitcoin did rally above $10,000 last night, but it's dipped back down to about nine and a half right now. So uh, I know by the dip, right? It's <laughs> I sex that's right before we got on the call once I saw that drop. Excellent. Um, <laughs> for sure. And I think Bitcoin just getting warmed up. The, the little bump yesterday, the little drop today. I think these are just essentially static they're just noise they don't mean anything and i think we'll see the momentum build over the coming months or years and it feels more or less inevitable at this point it's not inevitable that we'll be on a bitcoin standard but it feels inevitable that the next cycle is going to occur i don't think there's any way it could be stopped and the more chaos we see i think the more potential that this next blow off top is higher so I think 50 to 100K would be conservative top. And I think the more chaos we add here, the num- I, don't, I don't even want to quote a number, but it could be much, much, much higher, I think. That's crazy to think about, isn't it? Yeah, it's, um, and that brings up even weird feelings itself, right? Very. You know, as you're watching, as you're watching, to use an analogy, as you're watching the world burn, but if Bitcoin just starts doing what it's doing and, does what we think it's going to do. That's why we're here. Are you ready for that? Are you ready for like to, to, you know, what does, what does that do psychologically to a person? Do you think? Yeah, honestly, I don't know. I'm more uh, concerned from like my personal psychology standpoint on all of a sudden gaining a tremendous amount of wealth. That's much more intimidating to me than riding out a bear market. Um, I found that to be tremendously easy. Um, but all, if all of a sudden I, my personal net income increases by an order of magnitude, um, that will change things. And I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure how I'm going to handle that personally. Um, from a, it's easier for me to answer that question from a wealth transfer standpoint, meaning um, people who own capital now uh, earned it in the old system. And that could be remnants of like the great American families and, you know, the Rothschilds and the Vanderbilts and all that. Um, and people who have sort of suckled at the teeth of central banking and, you know, cronyism, which is kind of what America is today. And so those people who own all the capital, who now own all the politics, um, they're not people we want to have the capital anymore. And so if we see a wealth transfer, a meaningful wealth transfer towards Bitcoin, I think the people who own the capital in that situation will be people that I can support much more. Um, they're typically a little bit, uh, anti-state, a little bit of a rebel. They are critical thinkers. They're comfortable being, uh, against the herd of humanity. They're leaders. Um, they're all sometimes also crazy. 
but I'll take a little bit of crazy versus deeply corrupt and entrenched. And yeah, so I'm optimistic. I hope Bitcoiners have a bunch of capital. Um, in a way, I think um, hoarding capital is the single biggest way to change things. Um, if you have the capital, you can influence whatever you want. You can build and buy whatever you want. Bitcoin is very easy to secure. So theoretically, um, if Bitcoiners hold a lot of wealth, they can uh, leave a country and another country will gladly accept them. So there's a little bit of uh, exit power, uh, voice and exit power from Balaji. And so, yeah, I'm very optimistic about that change. And it's funny, you just said about um, enjoying the bear market more than you, you would enjoy the bull market. That's the power of Bitcoin. It just turns every emotion on its head. Imagine imagine like a, a hedge fund manager or a stock market trader or someone saying something like that. Well, if they're if they're good at shorting positions, some of them make more money in a bear market. <laughs> but psychology-wise, it's sort of strange. Like I thought the bear market was fun because the community was small but very very dense. Everyone there cared. And uh, selfishly, that's when I started writing and publishing about Bitcoin and getting my ideas out there, which was much easier in a bear market. Um, I already don't like the, the chatter picking up. It, I mean, it's necessary. We have to onboard these, these newcomers and we need to get better at that. Um, but it's not so fun when the whole Internet's talking about nonsense. Bitcoin, Bitcoin related, but very lowbrow conversation. Um, I personally don't enjoy that. So. I have a feeling in a bear market euphoria stage, I'll probably read less about Bitcoin stuff. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think you're right. And um, like in another four years, a lot of people will get shaken out on Bitcoin. Twitter would have grown by about, I don't know, a thousand people rather than the, uh, you know, rather than the million that are about to um, to fall into uh, like, oh, Bitcoin, Bitcoin, Bitcoin. Um, we got to touch on your article about um, mushrooms and uh, the mycelium network. And I never know whether it's a mycelium, mycelium, fungi, or fungi, or, you know. <laughs> but so uh, please forgive uh, please forgive my mispronunciation. What inspired you to write that series? And if, I, if I'm getting this right, I think you it was only ever going to th be three parts, but then like a fourth part just grew itself in, in a classic analogous fashion. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Um, so you're from the UK, correct? And yes. there they say often fungi a little bit more. I say fungi or mycelium. Um, but, you know, all of them are acceptable, and you'll hear professionals in the field call it every single name you've ever heard of. So don't feel bad. Call it whatever makes sense to you. Um, so what inspired me to do this? I was living in Bali in 2018. Um, so my wife and I quit our jobs at Oracle, like corporate enterprise software sales in 2014. And then we spent a year backpacking through Asia. And then the last, um, essentially 2014 to 2018 or 19, we mostly lived abroad. And so we work remotely, travel, live, whatever. And part of that, we were in Bali and I was going to meetups all the time in 2018 and had the idea at one of those meetups, came home and just scribbled for a couple hours, got the pretty much the, all the first series out, at least main ideas in one sitting, sat on it for a while and eventually published it, um, which I mentioned many times. But Dan Held published Planting Bitcoin, which was um, a nice analogy. I like that analogy. 
And it sort of gave me the courage to say, okay, maybe these crazy ideas will be accepted, um, even though it's coming from seemingly left field. And to my surprise, um, it was very, very well received, the first one. I never had anything go, quote, viral before. And for me, I think I had two or 300 followers on Twitter when I released that. And um, yeah, my, my phone kept dying because the notifications were just pumping. <laughs> I had to turn all that off. Uh, it was a weird day. But yeah, it, it started out as one piece. And then I re when I wrote that, I probably had 20 or 30 pages of extra notes. And I was like, oh, man, there's so much more here. And I just slowly tried to refine that into sections. And then I wrote the third part. I thought that was the end. And it got to be so long. And there was sort of disjointed ideas. And so I think it was actually Gigi who reviewed that third one and said, I think you should break this up. Um, these ideas aren't as aligned as you think. And so thanks, Gigi. Um, broke it off. And I'm actually really happy with how the fourth one turned out. It was very, very, very hard to write. But it was essentially about symbiosis and how plants and fungi work together to colonize dry land starting about 500 million years ago. And that symbiosis is uh, what we're finding now from an ecology standpoint is that organisms aren't actually competing as much as we thought. Instead, they almost all are interdependent and work together. And if you look at a forest, it is connected underground by this mushroom mycelium. And that's really important to understand ecology. And in that article, I sort of tell the story of biological evolution and compare that back to symbiosis with Bitcoin and the role it plays. And I think what's interesting right now is looking at this incredible period of transition. And what if we form symbiosis? What if we form a strong relationship with Bitcoin during this chaotic time? And it's my belief that this is the perfect time for individuals to form a relationship with Bitcoin. Um, they teach us many things like we mentioned before, an uncertain world, Bitcoin provides optimism. It's an escape hatch. It's a parallel system. Um, it's, it's actually riskier not to own Bitcoin. And it's also a deflationary asset, which teaches you low tide preference to delay consumption, which is the perfect antidote to the last 20, 30 years. Um, it also forces personal responsibility. You know, all of a sudden you have a significant amount of money in your pocket or in a USB drive or something like that. Um, it forces an individual to say, okay, this is important. How do I take care of it? And that's very different from putting your money in the bank account. And so I think now it's time for individuals to form symbiosis. I think people are starting to wake up to that. And then as a society, I think it's also a time that we realize the current system, um, it's not going to, it's not going to persist forever. So at a certain point, we need a new system. And right now, Bitcoin seems to be the clear leader. Um, although it needs a lot of work, I don't see another alternative right now. So as a society, I think we should be embracing Bitcoin because it is better for everyone eventually. The transition might be hard, but ultimately a fair money system is better for the whole world. Yeah, 100%. And it's funny you bring up Bali because um, I remember visiting Bali in oh the late 90s and visiting a bar and... You know, come the end of the night, you know, oh, here's the bill. They want US dollars. And I didn't even think about it back then. Did not even cross my mind. It's like, well, okay, I have US dollars or I have Indonesian rupiah. Why aren't why don't they want the rupiah? Like now I get it. Now it's like so glaringly obvious. Like, why didn't they want their own currency? It's Definitely. it's crazy. So 
when you were in Bali and this this kind of idea started manifesting, were you? I can't, I can't even. Uh, I don't even know the name, but I do know there was uh, like a a shroom shack, like we could go and buy mushroom milkshakes or something like that. Um, I can't remember if it was in Kuta or um, Legian. Uh, do, yeah, do you know yeah. the place I'm talking of? Yeah. Um, there are many places that, that sell mushrooms in Indonesia. So strangely, Indonesia is actually the largest Muslim country in the world. Most people don't know that. It's also the mm-hmm. fourth largest country in the world, right behind the U.S. I think Nigeria will pass it in the next few years. But for now, it's got... Uh, you know, the fourth most people. And they, Bali itself is a mix of Hinduism and local animist religions from a long time ago. So it's actually a very unique place in Indonesia. And in that area and the neighboring island, mushrooms, psychedelic mushrooms are legal. However, cannabis and other drugs are considered the devil and people get executed for transporting those drugs in and out. And strangely, you can go to the you know, the Bob Marley music playing beach shack and order mushroom shakes casually. You can go to the 7-Eleven or the, like a local corner store and they've got a refrigerator full of mushrooms. And yeah, I think that's very strange. That actually did not play into this idea, although some people assume it did. I do have uh, a long history with psychedelic mushrooms. However, um, it wasn't acutely connected. Okay. Well, then I want to ask you about that because... I am about to start uh, a journey with uh, psychedelic mushrooms. Um, I, it's something I really want to check out um, because, and this is very out of character for me because I've grown up thinking, you know, psychedelics, LSD, you know, I'm, I'm of that um, age group that were told this is bad. Uh, you know, don't touch it. Uh, the, the age group before me were all on it and doing it, you know, the Beatles and whoever else. But by the time it got around to us, it was like, no, this is affecting like human be- behavior, you know, all of these deaths and whatever else. Um, but yet somehow, like the drug of choice for, for my generation was um, either cocaine or ecstasy. I, I managed to avoid all of that. Um, doesn't stop me having a beer every now and then. You know, for some reason, I think human beings are always trying to alter our state um you're nodding your head what 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 is that do, do you know what why 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 do human beings why do we chase this like do, do other animals do it too like yeah good question I, I don't think anyone actually knows the official answer here but i'll kind of go through my thoughts um yeah number one tremendous amount of animals do seek to change their consciousness you can observe this all over like uh, dolphins get high on puffer fish. They pass it around. It looks like kids behind the schoolyard passing a joint around. Um, elephants go eat fermented fruit and get drunk and also violent and angry when they do so. Monkeys get drunk. Um, koala bears get high on eucalyptus. The list goes on and on and on and on. And so it seems fundamental. And humans also have been seeking to change our consciousness since time immemorial, both through external stimuli uh, drugs, plants, fungi, etc., and also through things like dancing, drumming, chanting, meditation, uh, vision quests, self-mutilation. All those things have a pr- profound uh, change in our consciousness. And why? I, I think one answer is because uh, humans specifically, we have this incredible consciousness, but that comes with a high cost. I call it the curse of consciousness. 
we can actually observe ourselves in our place. And that comes with some existential issues, like what happens after we die? What if this means nothing? And day to day, having that consciousness leads to things like anxiety and fear and depression, all those things. And so in some way, drugs are a way to get out of our head. And I think that humans generally want that as some sort of a coping mechanism. Now, on a slightly more charitable side, I think that um, drugs also provide a source of novelty. Um, firsthand, that is very true. Everyone who's taken psychedelics would agree with this, that um, it does feel like you're being given information that may or may not come from within you. And if we think about that on a grand scale, many people uh, increasing the amount of novelty that they perceive all over the world, uh, that, that would definitely change a society over time. Right. New ideas come in and maybe there are things that you can then apply externally or maybe they're just ways to improve yourself individually. You know, I think about psychedelics as like a mental defrag, you know, just cleaning out the, the, the disk space in your brain. Um, you're also checking your own blind spots and, you know, it has all these other broadly applicable beneficial themes that come out. And I think that's really important. Um, I'll stop there. I have plenty more to go on this topic, but I want to give you a chance to orient. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I, you know, the first thing that jumps to my mind is why on earth have I, how, how's it happened that, you know, myself and probably many people listening to this, how have we fallen for this narrative that putting something like a mushroom in, 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 into our mouths is illegal and we shouldn't do it? That's it, nuts. It's completely nuts. Um, humans have been eating mushrooms for as long back as history has shown at this point. And so it's actually a really small window of time when we've tried to prohibit things like mushrooms. And so, yeah, I think we're going to look back and laugh that we tried to police something that grows in your backyard on accident. And all over the world, pretty much every single ecosystem produces psilocybin mushrooms. And they also have a curious way of popping up in peculiar places. If you go to the Pacific Northwest or the Bay Area, um, there's a lot of wood species, wood loving species. So they would grow in like a place with wood chips. So this could be a Kmart parking lot with, you know, wood <laughs> chips in a police station, college campuses and big, huge, bodacious psilocybin mushrooms grow. They're like flicking off the police station. And so they have they have that like curious trickster thing about them um, subjectively. I don't know where that where that ends, but it's quite curious. And you know, it, it came out of backlash from the '60s. So the ba the baby boomers rebelled against their parents, um, who gave them everything. They went a little overboard with psychedelics. Most people would agree with that. Um, but it was also just an uprising period. And so one way to fight back against the uprising was to um, demonize the drugs that they were associated with. And then we went through a period of really, really strong war on drugs because that would be the solution to fix things. Um, however, obviously that's not true. There's a massive psychedelic revolution happening right now. And, you know, the science is supporting it. Um, even the FDA in the United States, we're going to have psilocybin and MDMA legal within a few years here. Um, and, and it's actually a both sides of the aisle issue. It's really important that we do this. And so I, I think that the stigma will change. It's still there, but it's changing very quickly. And I think it's important for humanity to just like think about the issue and not all drugs are the same. The word drugs is so 
obtuse and brutish to this bouquet of chemicals. And people think that we're anti-drug. Our society is not anti-drug. We're very pro-drug. Every single person doesn't want to change their, their uh, how they behave, their personal actions. They want to go and get a pill from the doctor. Everyone, everyone consumes coffee. Everyone consumes alcohol and tobacco. Cannabis is very popular. Um, we're very pro-drugs. We're just anti the stigma drugs. And so I think we need to understand that drugs are very diverse. Some are good, some are bad, some are in the middle. And the psychedelics in particular are unique. They're, they're the least dangerous. They're physically almost 100% harmless to our, to our bodies. They're also non-addictive or even anti-addictive. They cure the, the traumas that lead to addiction. And, you know, mushrooms particularly, we, we're not even sure if there is a way to kill yourself with mushrooms. We've never found a lethal dose, and I don't think we ever will. And so, first off, yeah, let's, let's agree. There's many different types of drugs. Second, whose job is it to police what an individual adult can have and not have in their own home? Do we really want the government to police what we can and cannot consume? To me, I find that to be completely insane. And so cognitive liberty is the, the line there. We need to have cognitive liberty, just like we need monetary liberty. I view those as identical um, issues. And I also think that changing consciousness is fundamental to the human experience. And I hearing someone like you open-minded now is amazing to me. I love hearing that. If rational, good-natured, critical thinking humans are live a full life, die, and never experience a, psychedelic, a powerful psychedelic experience, in my mind, they did not fulfill the whole human experience. They missed a gigantic aspect of what makes us human. And this isn't just my belief. This is all humanity throughout history have, have used these or some type of consciousness change. And so it's fundamental and it's, um, it's good for people. Right. You, you, I mean, I'm sold. Um, <laughs> I do want I do want to ask you to clarify one thing, just in case listeners out there are um, like you know ready to disagree or you know have further questions about it. You said no one we know of has died of mushrooms yet, but obviously there are poisonous mushrooms. You are talking about the the, the mushrooms that are used specifically so could you make sure that the listeners have that down before anybody listens to this and go start and pick and field mushrooms and uh <laughs> very important point um so most mushrooms are not edible there there's over a million species of fungi that we know of that's more than plants and animals combined in that gigantic amount of fungi species there are poisonous ones there are edible ones that taste fantastic and there are some that contain uh psilocybin which is the main active ingredient that uh, gets you high in these mushrooms. And so if you are going to pursue this path, both for culinary purposes or for psychedelic experiences, um, do your homework, be extra double, super careful. Um, people do die every year from poisonous mushrooms, so know what you're getting yourself into. Um, could not underline that more. Same with all drugs. Um, you know, Pay attention to where you're getting them from. Be overly cautious, buy test kits. If you're experimenting with drugs that can be tested, um, you know, and, and don't abuse these things. They are tools. They should be tr treated with utmost respect. And the first time you get your ass kicked by a handful of mushrooms, your opinion will change of these things. They should be taken seriously. <laughs> and 
a, a nice riff that you went on as well about um you know drugs and that word this this horrible kind of word that just invokes so much emotion in people but at the end of the day you're right like the we're taking drugs every day and that has been very much part of the the like the sales tactics of of many of these big pharmaceuticals um they probably don't want you taking mushrooms that could even be part of the narrative right because if you did and if you can fix your anxiety and you can fix your depression you can fix whatever it is your addiction like you said then they're going out of business they can't patent a mushroom that grows in your backyard correct it's very very anti-pharma they want drugs that uh, you know from a farmer's perspective a good drug is a drug that you take every day for the rest of your life Mm. And what we're finding with psilocybin, and it has to be patentable, right? What we're finding with psilocybin is you cannot patent it, it comes from nature. And you need one, two, or three doses for pretty much all the use cases. And so how do you make money on a drug that you show up once or twice and you never come back again? And so there's obviously a friction there. Um, I think what we, what we will see is that pharma will try to take psilocybin or another chemical and tweak it a little tiny bit and try to patent it and put it in pill form. I think that that probably will happen. Um, but I don't, I don't know how they're going to monetize it. So I think that'll sort of be a last dish effort. That'll be the pharma industry uh, capitulating just like central banks will have to do eventually. <laughs> <laughs> so is there like, um, and we'll, just to end on this one, um, is there like a one-stop shop where people can go just to buy like the, the friendliest, um like starter is is there such a thing like a starter mushroom kit like you know do, do you do you know what i mean yeah so if, if someone's looking to acquire psychedelic mushrooms is that the question like how would you go about doing that yeah yeah i mean what yeah. what's the first step for someone rather than go foraging and, and end up eating the wrong thing and being sick all night and like you know what the hell are those guys talking about there's right, there's right. got to be there's got to be, I don't know if there's an online store or something that you can recommend or are happy to recommend. Sure. So the, the short answer is that it really depends on where you are and what you feel comfortable with. Um, the most dangerous thing about psychedelics is they're generally specific, generally speaking, illegal. So getting caught with mushrooms is a million times more dangerous than consuming them. And so understand your local laws, be very careful um, people do get thrown in jail all the time for having some mushrooms in their pocket, which is insane, but Nuts. it happens. So be careful. Um, some jurisdictions allow you to acquire them foraging yourself. Other ones do not. Um, I think in the U.S. you can acquire psilocybin-containing mushroom spores. So little mushroom seeds are legal because they do not contain psilocybin. However, as soon as you try to grow them for a drug, it becomes illegal. And so... It's up to you. Like generally speaking, if you know any people who sell cannabis, you, if you ask a few pot dealers if they know how to find mushrooms, the answer is usually yes. Um, some people prefer to grow them themselves. There's unlimited free resources online. I've never done this, but um, it doesn't appear to be too difficult. And so, and funny enough, when mushrooms became popular in the U.S. around the 50s. Uh, Gordon Wasson and his wife went down to Mexico. They experienced a ritualistic setting with psilocybin. They came back, wrote an article for Life magazine. So 1956, I think it was, Life magazine front st cover story was magic mushrooms. They coined the term. And wow. after that, 
a huge generation of young people started growing mushrooms in their dorm rooms and essentially selling mushrooms to pay for college was a move during that period of time, which is a really funny period of history. And so growing them is entirely possible. Forage them is possible. I don't recommend foraging them if you are new to mushrooms. Um, there are many poisonous lookalikes. You need to be very clear with what you're doing. Um, all that being said, I would say education comes first. So exhaust yourself with learning. I think Michael Pollan's new book, How to Change Your Mind, is a great place for people to start. You know, he's not coming from psychedelia. He's coming from a middle-aged guy who was told drugs are bad and changed his mind as I think he's 60 or something like that. So if you're mm -hmm. unsure, read that one. If your parents are unsure, just give them that book. Mm -hmm. It's it's weird, isn't it? Because, you know, yeah, like you think about it, it's like, oh, what am, what would my parents think? What, what you know, the, the, I'm going against everything like I was ever taught, like – just to eat a mushroom, man. Like, you know, <laughs> slice yeah. of a mushroom. How do you eat? Do you even cook it? Like, I don't know. Like, it's, what do you do? <laughs> Most people dehydrate them. Uh, you, you take a fresh mushroom and you dehydrate it. So now you have a shelf-stable thing that can persist for a long time. But mushrooms, when they're fresh, decay really quickly. Um, the mushrooms are just a reproductive organ of the fungus. And so they pop out of the ground very quickly release their spores. And as soon as they release their spores, they allow themselves to be eaten and they attract insects and um, insects come and they eat the mushroom and then they spread the seeds everywhere. And so they're highly, highly perishable. And so dehydrating them is yeah, typically the way to go. All right, man. Well, let's move on from mushrooms. I want to get back to legacy systems because way back when in this conversation, you said you used to work for Oracle and... Um corporate sales was that was that correct correct yeah i sold enterprise software for oracle for about four years right out of college right okay now for many younger people listening to this that, that might be thinking you know along the lines of well i'm sure you were thinking along the lines of you know i've just landed the dream job right this is this is the home run like one of the biggest companies that have ever been created in a um, probably a well-paid job, uh, probably linked very closely to a good commission structure. Why only four years? Yeah, that's a good question. It was actually a very, very pivotal point in my life. Um, I grew up as a young entrepreneur, constantly starting businesses, like constantly growing up. Um, and then I went to school, business, oh, started engineering, went to business school. My whole life, I thought I was going to be a high-powered business professional. That's what I thought my career was going to be. Um, then I get the job. I was the youngest person at the time in that role. I was, you know, breaking records, getting awards, getting promotions, getting paid very well. And I'm a 22, 23 year old kid who thought he made it. And a couple years into that, I started to not really be satisfied. And I wasn't really sure what to do. They were grooming me for another promotion. I went and hung out with that new team I was about to be a part of. And I realized that the team of people were deeply unhappy. Um, they were treating our servers really poorly, which is a good litmus test. Um, they're all alcoholics, infidelity everywhere, just generally like deeply unsatisfied. Like the archetypal wealthy salesperson, that type of archetype. And I realized that I did not want to become that. And I'm very susceptible to my environment. So I hit pause. Um, I actually went through yoga teacher training and was also beginning to experiment with psychedelics around this time. And so I, I sort of had a pause, let's check in here. And I had a, a yoga community, which was very different. 
And those people were happy all the time. And I felt good when I left that community. And then I would leave my sales job stressed out, road rage, anxious. And so I sort of had a nice juxtaposition. And what I realized in that was, okay, I have the ability to change. This isn't my end goal. But in order to do that, it was very hard. I had to essentially kill the boy, kill my dreams, essentially abandon who, what my identity was at the time. Everyone who knew me knew me as that. Um, I abandoned that. And my wife, girlfriend at the time, now wife and I left our jobs at Oracle and we just bought a one-way ticket to India and said, um, let's try something different. And thankfully, Oracle paid well, paid off all, all our student loans and saved a bunch of money and could not work for several years. And yeah, that transition gave me time to uh, observe the world with new lenses, um, really see how other people live. And I couldn't be happier about that. You know, I've started businesses since that allow me to be location independent and eventually made way for Bitcoin. So um, yeah, couldn't be happier about that. It's, um, it's a huge, like, to, you know, it, I was 37 when I had that epiphany. I'd already been in a, like a, a sales role in foreign exchange of all <laughs> when I think back now, but like, you know, what, what I've become with, uh, you know, starting a Bitcoin podcast and, and going against, uh, mainstream finance. I spent, you know, 17 out of my 18 years as a foreign exchange broker. Um, it's crazy, but you paint yourself into this corner and you get wrapped up with, like the success and like you said um the stress almost becomes your identity that you know the stress almost feeds the whole thing it's like well this is what i worked for it's taken me so long to get here like the sunk cost that most people face in their day-to-day -day career cripples any life move that they're even close to dreaming about absolutely do you have a message for those people well i i would say that although it feels like you can't make a change like the sunk cost you do feel that but it's called the sunk cost fallacy for a reason um it's logically wrong and so don't let your brain and don't let your circumstances dictate your life you know author your own life step up make a change and i know how hard it is um i had a realization where every month in right in the mix of this, I would look back on a month and, and not re realize that I didn't even know what I did last month. Absolutely nothing stood out. The weeks are the same, work out a few times, watch a movie, go get a happy hour, you know, whatever the weekends and no nothing happens. So time just blurs. And I'm like, what am I doing here? And so that was really powerful, sort of like, it doesn't feel like I'm doing anything. And another experience that I don't know, I don't think I should go too deep into this, but I did smoke DMT for the first time during this, which is uh, by far the most powerful psychedelic. It lasts 15 minutes. It's um, stranger than I could possibly even get into. And out of that experience, I left with a feeling of, um, yeah, go do what you love. Like the most cliche experience ever, follow your bliss. And that combined with yoga teacher training, combined with the realization, combined with the people I don't want to become, um, all that mixed together gave me the courage to turn my back on who I was. And so I'm aware of how hard that changes. I stayed at Oracle long. I knew that was already true for at least a year, if not closer to two years before I actually made the decision. So it is hard, but um, if you want to baby step, if you're curious, you want to get started, just... Uh, 
pause that for a little bit and invest in some in yourself and some other area that totally interests you, whether it's gardening or yoga or reading or writing or start a podcast or start a business, whatever it is, just put your footstep in another direction and, and see where that goes. Yeah, it's great advice. And for anyone who's a little bit older and that might be listening to this, you know, if you've been at a company more than 10 years, you know, you, you do a sabbatical. And if you ask for one, like two to three months, like, you know, I just need a drop a knee for two or three months. If they just flat out say no, that's the biggest red flag you yeah. could ever, like, right? <laughs> totally. And people should not be so loyal to their large corporations. Now, a startup, I feel differently. If you have passion behind the project, you really care about what the company's doing, that's different. If you're just a employee number 97215 doing a job, um, do not give your company any more than they, they deserve. They're not loyal to you. They do their best to pay you as little as they can to give you the least benefit as they can, and they'll get rid of you as soon as it's convenient. And I'm not saying that means corporations are bad. That's just the game. It is a market for talent and work. So, you know, treat your company that way. Don't put your identity on your company. Don't let them dictate how you feel. You know, stand up for yourself. And if that means leave, leave. If it just means stay in your company, but know that you're not um, – you're not employee, right? You trade your time for money there and you're a person. Just that type of framing makes the whole process feel better. For example, when I left Oracle, I, I knew about six months before I left that it was already a done deal. Bought a ticket, started selling everything. The process was in motion, but no one at work knew. And what changed is all of a sudden I stopped doing the things that I felt obligated to do. I stopped kissing ass when higher ups came into town. I stopped, you know, overly displaying how good I am to the right people strategically at the right time. You just stop playing the game. I stopped going to lunch with people that I should go out to lunch with, but that I actually don't care about. And all of a sudden I was having way more fun at work. And that was very strange. Like my last six months at Oracle were great. I stopped cutting my hair. I, you know, came late, left early. I still had the highest number of sales on our team and, I was training new people. All that stuff was going good. But all of a sudden, my framing changed, and that changed everything. Yeah, it's very cool. Uh, there's, a, there's a great blog post um, by Mark Mason called uh, The Subtle Art of Giving – no, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Oh, which, yeah, yeah, Mark Manson. Yeah? <laughs> Did you read that one? I, I read a, a bit of it. I'm very familiar with Mark, and I've read a great. lot of his stuff, but I haven't, I haven't read it. And he, he actually turned that blog post into a book. And I, I, you know, go check out the blog post if you're listening because it, it was very uh, – and another thing that unlocked me was uh, the 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. Huge, um, like, opportune moment for me to read that book and then just throw everything in. And like you, you like, sell everything, right? We're taking the kids out of school. We're taking four kids around the world that, you know, bam, let's just go. Um, but it's – at one point you mentioned there – um about it don't um put the trust i can't remember exactly what you said i'm, I'm going to paraphrase don't put your trust in that company don't don't just work for them uh blindly um because yes they will they're going to flick you one day and when you're just surplus to requirements and you have no idea when that's going to happen and you have no idea how that might play out or why it might play out you're sitting there with a target on your back every single day. Now, for many boomers, for those boomers that might be listening, that was a different time. 
right? They didn't have that. They genuinely did have jobs for life for the most of them. And that's when you worked the 30, 40 years and you were a good employee and you got the the gold tie pin or something when you left, right? Or the, the golden handshake or the golden watch. It's so nice to hear your generation realize that does not exist because there's so many people my age that are stuck that have the the boomer narrative like just write it out they'll look after you they'll look after you you'll get the good pension you know you the sunk cost fear and i went through this with my own parent with my own parents when i left when i called them up said right i'm quitting that's it it's all over like what you can't do that just another maybe another 20 years and you'll be golden i'm like oh god that's the point like i can't do that so if there's one message that comes out of this whole podcast, it's it's you trying to reach people and say, look, you know, don't paint yourself into that corner. Take control. Definitely. And I, I think it's actually conflict. It's hard for millennials to treat it as an economic arrangement because millennials are steeped in teamwork and everyone's opinion matters and they want their work to matter. They want their boss to care about them. They want to be treated well, all these things. And that's a good thing to want those things. But the reality is that the, the trade is not fair. And if, if you approach it that way, right, it can be fair. Like I'm not opposed to jobs or working or anything. I like work. I like trading my time for money, et cetera. But just treat it as an economic relationship. Those are not your family. They're not your friends. They're your job. And the rest of the stuff, if you have that also, that's great. But that's a bonus. And so, yeah. I think we covered that one pretty well. Nice. Like you said, play the game. See it as a game. I never saw it as a game. I didn't. I, I saw it as um, like, uh, uh, you know, wow. I'm, you know, thank goodness that company hired me. I'm going to, I did not view it as a game. All right, man. Yeah, you, you're right. We did we did close out on that one very, very well. Um, I want to talk about the, um, yeah, like your affiliation uh, with Swan. And um, what you're doing with Swan, because almost every guest I bring on these days has some kind of affiliation with Swan. <laughs> and that is testament to like the hustle that Corey and Jan are putting in and the company that they're building because they get it. They absolutely understand it's a Bitcoin-only company, Bitcoin-only community, and we are going to build it around like the Bitcoin-only, like super players sort of thing. And whether that's, you know, Brady, I'm, I'm going to release an episode with Brady. Whether that's podcasters, writers, investors, Andy Edstrom, um, angel investors, it, it's what they're doing is crazy. So, could you give us a little? Um, little insight into what your role is and, and how you're helping those guys. Yeah, definitely. So I'll, I'll tell the story from the beginning. Um, I met Corey at Bitcoin 2019 in San Francisco last year. And we just had a, a friendly chat about Bitcoin stuff. He told me about give Bitcoin. He's like, hey, let's talk. Maybe there's a way we can, you know, you can help us. And I'm very uh, open to helping Bitcoin companies. I want to reserve as much of my time towards that as I can. And then we got together in December of 2019 and we had another chat and it, it turned into, Hey, let's, we found that some of my skill sets overlap what they needed. And so I just jumped on as an advisor to help with email marketing and uh, essentially software to automate 
areas of marketing. And so you can build a machine that scales versus all this manual stuff and use data to improve it. And I have a long history with that with my own personal online businesses. And so very nice match. Uh, we did that for a while and out of give Bitcoin came Swan. We realized that gives important, but Swan's massive and there's, uh, you know, cash apps solid, but there needs to be way more Bitcoin only on ramps. And that's just partially because where Bitcoin is right now, it should be just treated as a DCA accumulation stage for people who think they see the future. And so there's a massive hole there and Swan fills that cash app fills that a few other things fill that. Um, and I have to give a tremendous amount of credit to Corey. He is an incredible uh, fundraiser, recruiter, CEO, visionary type guy. Um, and in very short order, he's amassed a massive team that I would put up against pretty much any other Bitcoin company today. And the team seems to be growing. The numbers are looking good. The customers are coming in uh, very well. And I love working with Swan, you know, having day-to-day -day chats with these people that number one, I look up to in a way, number two, are really good at their jobs. Number three, we're all into Bitcoin. So the mission is so much more critical. It's not the same as doing a job. It's like, even if this thing's tedious, I see how it benefits something that I care so much about. And so, yeah, I, I couldn't get enough, uh, give enough love to the team and what Corey, Jan, Brady, et cetera, have created there. It's really, really special. Um, and what I do is I work on email marketing automation. Like I mentioned, I do some writing, um, more or less like behind the scenes stuff, uh, with marketing automation. And yeah, I love that stuff. It, it's super powerful. And we have a pretty small team of people who work day to day, but we're able to accomplish a lot. And fortunately timing is, is very right. So stepping outside of Swan a little bit, um, you know, there's a little bit more interest in Bitcoin. So I think now is the right time to be selling Bitcoin. What a simple concept, make it easy and good to do. Um, but that's what people want and that's what is needed in the industry. And so we have a huge tailwind behind us. I see Swan uh, exploding over the next few years, which I think is super cool. And then Bitcoin only, I think, you know, this narrative is talked about a lot, but I think it, it needs to be underlined again. And the people who understand that money is the most important thing coming out of this, um, which is obviously Bitcoin, that whole narrative deserves to be on its own and deserves to have focused resources, Bitcoin only resources. You know, we've seen the game of, hey, I'm an exchange, I sell you Bitcoin, get you in the door, and then all I do is pummel you with marketing to trade shitcoins. And it's not their fault. They're a business and that is the best way to monetize an exchange. However, that's very, very anti-Bitcoin. That does nothing to help Bitcoin. And Willy Woo and other people are talking about things like BitMEX, okay? The traders trading BitMEX. What BitMEX does is they collect fees paid in Bitcoin for trading Bitcoin and then they dump the Bitcoin on the market. And so, yes, they build liquidity. It's mandatory. You need to have deep markets at the same time it's a tax and it's downward pressure on the price at all times. And so we need to just view exchanges as something separate from Bitcoin on ramps. And I think that's already happening. I think the greater world will realize, okay, I can set up a dollar cost average plan with Swan, take five minutes, set up my plan, and then just not think about it. You know, that's the right approach to Bitcoin. And all the Bitcoiners out there, if you want to get your normie friends involved, send them to Swan if they live in the U.S., Help them set it up once and then you're good. 
and we're going to do everything we can to educate them. That's a huge part of our future vision is a massive onboarding platform with education in all different forms. And so we want to be the people that you outsource onboarding to. And if you send them to Coinbase, they're going to buy Bitcoin SV or whatever these other dumbass coins are, or zero X or whatever Coinbase list. And they're also going to crash when the time is right. So don't like outsource your support to us. Otherwise you're going to play support person for all your friends who buy shit coins and get racked and then they hate you for it. So uh, we're trying to fill that void and I think we're doing an okay job so far. Yeah, I I think it's amazing. And I think this DCA movement, I, I've spoken about this on a few um but first of all, for I, I excuse me, listeners, if you if you don't understand the acronym DCA, that stands for dollar cost average. And it's um like weekly or daily or monthly buys of small amounts of Bitcoin. So you can just enter very, very low risk style and average out the cost over the year. So you'll capture the average cost rather than trying to guess the peaks and troughs. Um, I think what's going on with this DCA movement, because we're seeing it at CoinFloor as well, which are Bitcoin-only exchange in the UK that are doing the DCA thing as well, Amber, um, and more and more, you know, I can't shill everyone because I don't know everyone, but there's more and more coming out. They, th- th- This DCA army are going to set a new base price for Bitcoin because if the miners start capitulating and need to sell or like you said, um, you know, certain exchanges, they offset and they sell, uh, they use Bitcoin to, you know, balance their, their balance sheet and they sell, there's going to be these like perma buyers that not been in the market ever before. And this makes me so bullish and I think it's going under. I think it's going under noticed. I agree. It's just squirreling away sats. The sats get taken off the market forever or for a long period of time. And yeah, that hodler base is what creates the price floor. And if you're trying to look at price and try to make sense of the, the charts, look at the, the yearly lows. That's the most important price in all of Bitcoin. And what it shows is doesn't matter how crazy the upswings are, but the, the yearly low continues to rise. And if that continues, you should be buying as much Bitcoin as you can afford. If that breaks, maybe reassess your, your situation here. But all I see is an acceleration of Bitcoin. And so it's hard not to be bullish right now. I think a good analogy is like uh, the minnows go hunting for the whale. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> they, they, out, they outnumber the whale, the whales, right? right. We're, we're, we're a giant school of fish, and together we pretend to be a large fish that scares away the whales and keeps the price going. Well, just pick the thing up and dump it on the nearest island. See you later. Like, you know? <laughs> oh man, we could be talking. There's going to be memes coming out of this. This <laughs> the minnows, exactly. All right. Well, I think we've touched on everything that we wanted to touch on, unless there's any other rabbit hole left that you might want to go down. Like, what, what's the what's the latest article that you you're putting together right now? If you're happy to give away spoilers, yeah, we actually touched on it earlier. It was sort of that perfect storm I was describing of uh, cyclical trends that are all converging on roughly this moment as being a, a time of change. 
And so I'm trying to look back into history. What can we learn here? Okay, let's give context around the time we're in. Pretty much every month this year has felt like a year. And so we're clearly in a period of change. And so looking back, what can we, what, what can we look out for? What can we dodge? How do we make the most of this transition? Because although the cycle ends and it starts anew, um, so let's be optimistic, a new cycle does not mean better. It just means change. And so what I believe is the next decade, the next 10 years define the next century. And so if you want to be good to your future man, if you want to be good to your kids and grandchildren, now is the time to pay attention. Now is the time to build and um, be really vigilant about what we're doing. Um, it's chaotic out there from an information standpoint, but it is our duty now to rebuild in an appropriate way. And I think Bitcoin's a large part of that. It's not the only part of that. Um, but for me, that's where I think my, my efforts are most well spent. And so, yeah, let's, let's go all in on the next decade. Let's rebuild right. Let's position Bitcoin right. Let's not give up our liberties. Let's learn personal IT security. Um, big change is coming. Love it. And are you red pill or orange pill? What language do you use? I mean, I, I lean towards red pill because it's universally known from the matrix, but I think orange pill is uh, slightly more descriptive. However, some people are going to come into Bitcoin through strange back doors. And so to me, red pill just represents um, being aware of being more aware of what's around you and trying to think for yourself. And I think in general, Bitcoiners already do this, but I think we need more people who take personal responsibility who think for themselves. And so um, I think red pill is the top of the funnel. Orange pill is a little bit closer to the bottom of the funnel. <laughs> All right. I've refined my last question, listeners. If you had one red pill left in your arsenal, who would you give that to? And oh, why? man. Let's see. I'm going to work backwards. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end up with the name. I don't know the name yet. So I think what I would love to see is the people who – are disadvantaged economically now, I would love to see more of those people stack some sats and have it change their life economically. What I fear is that uh, what's going to happen is people who have capital are going to take advantage of this Bitcoin wealth transfer more than the people who actually need it. And it doesn't mean that the people who actually need an economic improvement won't benefit from a Bitcoin standard. They will, but it will be much slower and much more long term. And so I would like to red pill someone who has a lot of clout on the lower socioeconomic class, um, both in America and in Europe and, and Africa and everywhere around the world. Who's, who's a champion of the people? Like, could it be a, a, the guy from Dirty Jobs? Uh, I forgot his name. He's awesome. Mike something. <laughs> Mike Rowe. Yeah, yeah. Amazing guy. Um, th that kind of guy. I love it. Right? Right? I want the most blue collar, low socioeconomic class cheerleader we can get our hands on. And I want them to say, you know what? You should be buying $5 a week. And yeah, it, teaching personal finance, personal responsibility and stack some sets for, for that group would be really, really nice to see. Let, let's see that class front run the banks. That's an amazing answer. Like to, to actually hear you talk through your thought process was brilliant because most people just go silent for like 38 seconds and like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, 
That's that's awesome. And the first time we've ever had Mike Rowe like uh, as an answer. Uh, the, the go-to is generally Joe Rogan. So uh, it's uh, it's good to... The problem with Joe Rogan is he speaks to the people who already own Bitcoin. And I love Joe Rogan. He has a massive megaphone and it would do a lot for Bitcoin. But I want to see some different people get front run here or front run. Looking at the demographics. I love it. Okay, Brandon, thank you so much for spending the time today and coming on and answering my questions and Lauren's questions and and going down some very deep rabbit holes and uh, being so open and honest. Uh, I think it's just awesome. I think um, your writing is, uh, is brilliant. Big shout out to Guy for doing all of the reading of your articles because that's where I consume so many of like the, the Bitcoin articles. Uh, you know, if I'm driving in a car, I can be reading at the same time and it's Guy's voice. There's none better. So uh, where could, um, is there any last shout outs that you, that you want to give any final thoughts for the listeners and where can people find your work? Definitely. So yeah, double underline on Guy Swan, uh, sign up to Bitcoin audible uh, he just rebranded that. It's a podcast. He reads the good Bitcoin articles. Send that to everyone. It's a fantastic resource. Um, if you want to check out Swan, you can go to swanbitcoin.com slash quitum. If you do that, I get five bucks and you get 10 bucks um, for signing up. If not, no problem. Just check it out. Um, if you want to connect with me on any of these ideas, just want to have a chat. Uh, my DMs are open on Twitter. Come say hello. My handle is at B Quitem, so B Q U I T T E M. Um, yeah, come say hi there, or my website brandonquitem.com. That's where I'm going to be publishing from now on, rather than Medium. Um, also publish on the Swan blog as well. And yeah, I think I don't have any final last words besides thank you. That was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. And um, yeah, I love what you're doing with the pod, man. It came out of nowhere and it seems like it's doing really well, getting great guests and growing fast. So. I love to see it. Appreciate it, man. Thank you very much. Um, final words for me: it go stack some sats. Uh, and if you're in the US, use Brandon's like sign up with uh, with Swan because they are 100% Bitcoin only and uh, a brilliant, brilliant company. Brandon, thank you so much. Have yourself uh, a great afternoon. Thank you. See you later, Daniel. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening. And um, as always, thanks. Uh, for tuning in and and sharing and um, spreading the message uh, of uh, of the podcast and of the show, I hope you um, hope you enjoyed this one. I I found it fascinating. Uh, I found um, Brandon's writing fascinating. Uh, you know, I let uh, I always let Guy Swan read my Bitcoin podcasts. Uh, excuse me, my Bitcoin articles for me. You know, I just don't find the time in the day to to sit down and read all of these articles. So to have someone like Guy doing that work for us is just ridiculous. Go check out his podcast, uh, The Crypto Economy, um, now called uh, Bitcoin Audible. And um, he, he reads all of this stuff. He reads all of these articles and it's just brilliant. And he's been on the show as well. So go and check out that interview with him. But um you know, talking with Brandon, it was just uh, such, such a pleasure. I mean, this is a guy we'd barely even interacted on Twitter, uh, would, like at all. Um, and I, I think you can probably hear from from just the flow of the conversation 
it's just completely natural. Um, but I find this with with all of the guests, you know, and and anybody that you meet uh, in person. That hey, like what you're into Bitcoin? Yeah, you understand a little bit about Bitcoin. It's like this this instant kinship. It's 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 Matt, and um, you know, it's really it's really amazing to sit down and have like these in-depth conversations with a complete and utter total stranger who's sitting like in a completely different part of the world from different background, different culture, different demographic, like different social upbringing, different education, and just be able to sit down and riff like for an hour and a half on a face-to-face Zoom call about really personal stuff and inner feelings think about that for a second like you know you 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 end up talking about things with people you've never met that are so like deep and personal that you wouldn't necessarily have a conversation about with your friends or family just because you have this one common grounding thing that is bitcoin and it's hard to explain that and this is what exactly what like Brandon's writing is is you know trying to explain bitcoin and this is what Petek does with her art she's trying to draw bitcoin and Brandon's trying to write bitcoin and think about it in a um you know in a way that resonates with him and like this this mycelium network idea is just mind-blowing really is um i hope you enjoyed the conversation and um you know feel free to reach out on twitter and and say hi and connect with brandon and and myself because uh there's a lot um a lot we got into and a lot we unpacked so as always thank you so much for listening if you're uk based go over to coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten and start stacking some sats if you're us based get over to swanbitcoin.com forward slash once bitten and start stacking some sats join this revolution if you haven't already or if you have make sure you're you've, you're just stacking like a daily stack a weekly stack a monthly stack you know not much just has to be a little just drip feed it and drip feed it and drip feed it and let's compound let's compound our stacks together and um, form this new wave of hodlers that uh, are going to create this, this new baseline price for for Bitcoin. And, and let's all do our bit of trying to educate as many people as we can. Uh, you know, we, we talked in the podcast about the rioting and the social unrest and everything that's going on. At time of recording, America was in a real bad place uh, with the riots. Um I think the UK is probably going to follow suit and I don't know, you know, one or two other countries too. These are torrid times and people are looking for, they're looking for answers, you know, that they're, they're, they're tired of the, the norm and like the injustice of these systems that have been built up around us and are crippling us. So make sure you know, start prescribing some some red pills. Um, start sharing podcast episodes, blog posts, 
um, you know, alerting people of, uh, of the price of Bitcoin and just try and get a conversation going and, um, and see how many people you can help out because, you know, it's, uh, it's a noble course, as we all know. Anyway, I will stop my ramble and uh, appreciate any of you listening and, and sharing the show around with your friends and family. Uh, I logged on just randomly the other day, checked out Apple Podcasts, and I saw, I don't know who, a few people have been leaving some some five-star reviews up there, which was very, very humbling. I've never asked for, for anyone to do that, and this isn't an ask. Uh, if whoever that was, uh, I really, you know, if you're listening, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, peace, everyone. Take care, and uh, I look forward to the next show. <laughs>